Right, you know, when I interview someone for a job, and you might want to take note of it if ever the day comes, um, I, you know, you always ask for the testimony. And when a person tells their testimony, I'm always listening to see how much grace has gripped them, um, how deep in their soul is the undeserved love of God and that profound sense of thankfulness. Because if you know grace, you'll teach grace. And if you know grace profoundly, you'll teach with grace. Because grace puts God at the centre of the story instead of us and uh, provokes within us a deep sense of thankfulness. So I'm sure you've had lots of definitions for grace. And, but by grace, I'm really the classic definition. You know, uh, God's love, when it's directed towards those who don't deserve it and even more so deserve the opposite. That's how I'm using the word grace. Uh, but the first thing to note is really this, that um, there is no grace within the triune God. Like, zip. Uh, the Father loves the Son because the Son deserves it. He is worthy of love because of the perfections of Christ. This is my Son in whom I will please. Jesus will say, I, you know, the fa- I love the Father because uh, I do exactly what the Father... I want, sorry, I want the world to know that I love the Father and I do exactly what the Father wants me to do. There's no grace within the Trinitarian relationships. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit because he is worthy of it. So when we're talking about grace, obviously, we're not talking about inter-Trinitarian relationships. But when it comes to us, God's sovereign grace drives uh, the story of salvation. You know that presumably that's what this weekend's, the, the few last few days has been about. And that grace stretches from eternity to eternity. So just really this first point is simply this. We teach with grace when we know the grace of God wherever we are in the story of salvation. And, and our imperatives are driven by those indicatives. The, the, the do is driven by the why and the particular way in which that why is shaped in whatever theological time zone, whatever theological time zone we are in the Bible, whether it's before the creation of the world where Jesus was chosen to die for the world that he, he was about to create or whether we were chosen before the creation of the world and not handed, uh, sorry, we, we were chosen to be adopted as his sons in love and not handed over to our hard heart or whether it was the grace of creation where we often don't think of the grace of creation, do we? That creation itself is an act of grace where God brings us into existence where we've done nothing to deserve that experience and that of all the species he makes us homo sapiens, image bearers, where we get to choose and glorify him, or whether we're talking about the uh, uh, being, uh, I've used the time references, in, before, the, before the creation of the world, at the beginning, in the past, where God you know, publicly launched his mission that would include the nations. Yes, we got second round offers, boys and girls. That's how I got into Sydney Uni. Uh, it's not just for the Jews. Um, and uh, and the, the choosing of Israel was so driven by grace that he, God goes out of his way in Deuteronomy to tell them, it's not because of your might and uh, power and it's not because of your righteousness that I'm choosing you and a God who holds out his hand. Uh, and then in the fullness of time, we see the grace of God where in the incarnation, God permanently sides with us humans in, uh, in becoming flesh and then being the true Israel, doing you know, what the law could not do, and that is die, living the life that we should have lived and dying the death we deserve to die, rising uh, uh, to the right hand of the Father and ruling and pouring out the Spirit that when we are at our worst, he gives us his best, uh, or knowing that we're in the last days where we, could, we are justified, knowing we know that the, uh, we can know now what God is going to say in the last day, and that is not guilty, where we've been sealed by the Spirit, where we've been given the down payment of the of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to be adopted, where we get to call the judge of all the earth, and this is now the pinnacle of grace, Dad, 
That's the highest. Bl- I think Packer's right. That's the highest blessing. Uh, and then instead of calling the angels to be co-ministers with him in, in preaching the gospel, he gets schmucks like us to going with the message of grace to the ends of the earth. My goodness, it never ends. And then we're at the end of the age when uh, uh, Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead and usher in a new creation where there's no more crying or grief or pain uh, and where God will dwell with us and we will see him face to face and we will praise the one on the throne and the slain lamb and we will know that the only reason we're there and not in the place of utter darkness is because of the scars on his hands and feet. Grace. Uh, That we will never ever tire of having our breath taken away in the coming ages. And so it's knowing wherever you are in the unfolding plan of God that, that drives whatever you know, the call to obey and even be holy. This is a love we don't deserve. This is a love we cannot earn. This is a love we cannot lose. Point one, we teach with grace by knowing the grace of God wherever you are in the story of salvation. Point two, and I've got 15 points. Uh, point two, but they won't be that long. We teach with grace when we teach with empathy. Um, I kind of put it this way. It borders on heresy. We kind of, as teachers of God's word, function like mediators because we bring the congregation to the text that we're expounding. And, and as we're doing that, we're coming as humans. And usually there's that jarring of word and world taking place. And it's like really important that we name the elephant in the room. Like the obvious one, like hell feels like the punishment is greater than the crime. Like, is it just me? I would have thought 10,000 years would have been enough. Uh, or election feels unfair to me. Like very, God doesn't feel very Australian, you know, that he would choose some and not all. Uh, and so you've got to name that. Uh, and, and don't be afraid to name it. Um, I think they hear better when they know you're feeling what they're feeling. You're empathising as a human with the text. Uh, I remember talking to a very good preacher who did a profound dissertation on the sovereignty of God but he never at any point recognised all the hard edges of that sovereignty. And I mentioned that to him. And, and, and he said, well, I've got no problem with it, Ray. And, and I said, I know you don't, brother, but many of us do. Because my daughter may not be elect. <laughs> and at some point, I wish you would name it. It allows me to hear what you're saying. Because you're on my side as you're presenting the text to me. Uh, we need to name what everyone is thinking feeling about the text. And, and, but finally, in the end, of course, we're ambassadors of Christ. We unapologetically side with Christ in his word. Um, and so, yeah, the hell might feel like the punishment is greater than the crime, but you know what that tells us? We have no idea how holy God is, and we have no idea how serious it is. So that's where we're going to end, right? But before I get there, I want them to know that I actually am a human reading this text with them, whether I'm a Christian human or an unbelieving human. Because I think it's actually the reality is the same. You know, people, you know, for those of you old enough to remember John Chapman, people often say it's his humour that they loved in his preaching. Of course, he, he, was, he was a spectacular comic. But really, what I loved about his preaching was you always ended up siding with God at the end of his preaching. And I always reckon that's a good mark of a preacher. Okay, point three. I'll say point two again in case you missed it because it went for a while. We teach with grace when we teach with empathy. Um, we teach with grace when we teach with respect in tone and content. Uh, be mindful that, you know, obviously there are unbelievers present, or hopefully they will be one day, uh, with many worldviews and religions present. And, you know, if you, I reckon in the 90s, I started MBM in 1991, but I reckon the decade of the 90s uh, was really the decade where I was looking for a fight in my sermons. <laughs> and I think I produced a generation of 
Mediterranean, Middle Eastern hotheads who were more anti, uh, anti-Catholic than they were pro-Jesus. And I thought, I'm not sure I got, kind of, I got the balance right. Um, um, uh, so I'm much more conscious, and I think it's a different era anyway, I'm much more conscious about wanting to be respectful in the way I refer to my opponents, theological opponents. I don't think Calvin and Luther are good models in this. If you've read any of their stuff, funny, yes. <laughs> Rude, yes. But not probably models in many ways. So I will speak consciously of my Pentecostal brothers before I disagree with them. Uh, I will speak of my Catholic and Muslim friends. Um, uh, I want to model that kind of respectful way in which we address people with gentleness and respect. I always remember, I love the story of Dick Lucas, who tells a story about in 1955, he was doing a mission in Oxford, and there was question time after the talks, and uh, there was one sarcastic uh, questioner who just kept hammering. And uh, he took about as much as he could cope, and then you know, he can give it as much as he could take it, right? He just unleashed on him. And um, anyway, he got home that night, and uh, he read his Bible before he went to bed, and it went to 2 Timothy 2.25, which reads, Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And he said, he wrote next to it, Oxford, 1955, <laughs> so that he never forgets and makes that mistake again. The clue that we truly believe that repentance is the result of the sovereign grace of God is the tone in which I speak with my, uh, with, with my opponents, with false teachers. That's my theological demonstration. I remembered coming to that conclusion after getting exasperated with some Jehovah Witnesses I'd been meeting up with. and I, on the, on, I was all right week one, two and three, but by week four... Uh, that was it. I think we reached the extent of God's, uh, God's great, sorry, Ray's, uh, uh, Ray Galea's um, patient quota because my tone started shifting and I started crossing the line in the way I addressed him. So now I was getting in the way. And, 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 and it was a declaration. I, I said to myself, Galea, you do not believe that God is the one who saves people because your tone right now is betraying the opposite. You think you can win them over by your tone. And that, of course, is heresy. Because I think part of the problem is we're too much wanting to win the argument and not the soul. And it's kind of a mindset difference. Uh, and it's also critical too within this that we're using different kind of language depending on what the issue is. So there is a place for use, obviously, using strong language. Uh, but I think our problem is we keep treating the Corinthian problem like it were the Galatian problem. Galatian problem, both barrels are out. Their salvation's on the line. You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you. It's urgent tones, strong language. I wish they go all the way. I mean, that's fairly blunt. But you notice how Corinthians begins? My goodness, he's so gracious with them. There's a bunch of turkeys. If you read the rest of that, they've worked out a thousand ways on how to divide on every issue. And he's so gracious with them as he begins that letter. Okay, we teach with grace when we teach with patience. So 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage. So you've got to do all that with great patience and careful instruction. I don't know about you, but I think if I've done a really good series of five weeks on the Holy Spirit, I assume they all know it. And, and then when I'm having conversation, I'm thinking, don't you know that the Holy Spirit is a person? I want to throttle their neck. What you, I've been wasting my time for five weeks. <laughs> so Paul doesn't just say teach with patience, teach with great patience. 
again and again and again. And it may take literally decades. You know, it took me seven years before I understood that the incarnation was permanent and that it wasn't like Jesus putting, uh, putting on his Superman uniform for about three years and then just took it off and returned back as a divine being. Wow, he's, he remains human as my high priest. Uh, and so I figured if it took me seven years to get that one, I ought to be patient with the congregation as well. Uh, we teach with grace when we teach with humility. Being mindful, I am one saved sinner talking to other saved sinners. Uh, so you use the we. I, I usually have to push young preachers to address the congregation like they're in the place of Christ. And there is a place of the I you language. I think it's actually very important. But of course, the flip side of that is we don't do the we language. And the and uh, being very mindful that you know we're in this together. <laughs> You know, we are by nature, Paul will do it, wouldn't he? We are by nature objects of wrath. He's, he's very inclusive at that point. Uh, but within, in, included in that, as Tim suggested, sharing your frailties, your mistakes, your sins, uh, and not just your victories, uh, telling them, uh, you know, about the gospel failures, those, you know, those dismal failures. <laughs> That's, I reckon, is as important that they hear that as the gospel successes when you uh, share the gospel and the person accepted Christ on the spot which only happened once in my whole life. Um, uh, can I say you can overdo that? Um, it was said of John Newton, he probably shared more than he needed to do about his past in the summary of his life. He probably shared a little bit more than he needed to. Um, we've got a bit too much detail there. Um, so you need to watch that if that's your inclination. Sixth, we teach with grace when we teach like we are for them. Of course, we are for them. I mean, I'm not talking about faking it. <laughs> Jordan Peterson, that would be the other Jordan Peterson, um, not that Jordan Peterson. But Jordan Peterson uh, uh, was asked why he is so popular with young men. And he said probably for two reasons. One, the YouTube thing, men learn by YouTube, and he's on it a lot. But he said the second thing is, he said, I think it's because I speak to young men like I'm for them. And I thought he said something very profound. Because in our world, it's very much against them. They are the cause of all the problems. And uh, we've got to make sure we don't fall into that trap. And, and that, that's just a window into, you know, that the congregation, and again, I think Tim said this as well, needs to know that we tell them that we love them actually because we do love them. Uh, and that's a constant heart issue, especially when some of them can get under your skin somewhat. You know, just being mindful that, you know, whatever week you've had, they've had their own unique week and they're anxious and they're frail. They're weak as well as willful, proud and disobedient. Um, and we want to inspire them and not break them. Uh, we preach for their good. And I think it's constantly, you know, I want their good. They're not, uh, uh, you know, when, when Paul speaks about the neglected grace of church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5, he uses strong language, right, doesn't he? You know, expel the immoral, hand him over to Satan. But all of that because of the guy sleeping with his stepmom. But again, think all of it is driven by one thing. I mean, sorry, several things guarding the church, and you know that's high first priority. But look at chapter 5, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians. He says, hand this man over to Satan, that's pretty strong language, for the destruction of the flesh with this purpose in mind, that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And so notice it's, everything's driven by that goal. And then seven, we teach with grace when people know they're not a means to our, to our end. 
So uh, we do pledge-based budgets, that is. Uh, we do the celebration series in term four and then we invite people to, you know, we put forward the proposed budget and get everyone's buy-in and, and they make pledges and we basically determine the budget by their pledges. So we take it seriously. We, we, if it involves sacking people, we'll sack people if the budget doesn't match the pledges or the pledges don't match the proposed budget. Anyway, last November, the day my mum died, I get a text uh, from my uh, treasurer the, budget, the pledges have come through after four weeks. We're 420,000 behind. Oh, my goodness. I wasn't in the mood of sacking five people, let me tell you. And uh, at that moment, to guard myself, I always ring Rod Irvine. who <laughs> He was my mentor in the past. And who always says exactly the same thing when I ring him up. Number one, Ray, whatever you do, don't panic. <laughs> Thanks, Rod. Number two, don't go negative on me, Ray. <laughs> Put in the context of the vision. Put in the context of the vision. Okay, right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, right. <laughs> he saved me from unleashing a mountain of crushing guilt on the congregation. Because you're so burdened, you know, you've got people's lives at stake, you know. Um, and by January, uh, it all came in a little bit extra. But my goodness, if it wasn't for him holding back that kind of instinct within me to go hard, and I'm not saying not present the need and appeal and urge and so forth, but but I knew that we had done everything we needed to do. It was now a question of communicating the implications, uh, thanking them for their generosity, but not pressing the flesh so much that I was manipulating them. Okay, point eight. We teach with grace when our identity is not bound up with their transformation. Um, example. Feels like a John Maxwell talk uh, book. You know, one point, two illustrations. One point, two illustrations. I just got back from long service leave, 2014. There was a lot of lead up into because we're about to launch our 10-year goals. This was like, this is a heavy-duty launch. Uh, it was over a four-week period. I got to week two, and I'd been away for a long time, and the numbers were really down. Oh, my goodness. It, th the words came out of my mouth, and it went like this. I don't know why I bother. <laughs> Anyone else said that? <laughs> I could. It just came out. Now it's been 25 years before anything like that come out. I, yeah, I'm not saying I haven't get frustrated and all that, but wow, I kind of, I felt like I hit rock bottom, <clears throat> and I knew that uh, I was in trouble uh, because I, you know, I I'm supposed to bother because God is worth it, and my congregation is not there to leverage off my self-esteem or to have my self-esteem leverage off their performance and transformation. And oh my goodness, that is hard to get in your head. And I think when we preach, it's there. Your heart is evident in how you preach. And so examining the heart constantly is critical. Uh, nine, we teach with grace when we model the affections of God. I didn't know quite how to say this. So, you know, you teach judgment, but you teach it with tears. Um, we teach salvation with that inexpressible joy that Peter speaks of. We plead and persuade from a heart that yearns, yearns for the glory of God, yearns for the lost, yearns for the saints to grow and become more like Christ individually and collectively. So we present them beautiful to Jesus on the last day. You know, God doesn't delight in the death of a sinner and nor should we. Judgment is that strange work of God. And, and as we talk about it, the tones in which we speak ought to reflect that. Um, uh, I was wondering about whether to tell the story, but I will. Uh, Al Stewart tells this story. Now, 
I think I remember it correctly, and I won't mention the, the guilty party. Uh, and he was teaching, he used to be at Trigia, and um, he was doing a seminar, one of the tough Mount Druid schools, and, and uh, this seminar went pear-shaped. And the person he got to speak uh, was preaching, and they just went ballistic. They weren't listening, they were throwing things, and this preacher's trying to you know, preach the gospel to them. And it just so happened that he said, and if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to go to hell, and he's going to enjoy it. Said <laughs> you there. Anyway, he sits down and Al says to him, uh, bro, I, I, I don't, uh, uh, he may send him to hell if they don't follow Jesus, but I don't think he's going to enjoy it. And the guy said, well, he mightn't, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> now, why don't I tell that story? I've got no idea. He didn't, quite, he didn't quite capture the affections of God for the lost. God does not delight in the death of a sinner. I still remember when um, the Iron Lady died. Um, Margaret Thatcher. And, you know, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the strikes that were that resulted, especially up in the north with the coal miners, and they did it really tough. And there were these massive parties when they heard she had died. And I just remember, wow, neither God, uh, God never takes delight in the death of a sinner, and nor should we. <clears throat> now, um, just in case I get misunderstood, of course, we teach, we teach with grace when we teach on the uncompromising holiness of God, <laughs> um, this is more content, you know. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. My goodness. Think about it. Just one sin and every human being died. Sin and death came to the world. Just one look into the ark and 70 humans died in 1 Samuel 6. Just one touch of the ark and ooze up, gone in 2 Samuel 6. Um, the impeccable, not the impeccable, the uncompromising holiness of God needs to be understood. Otherwise, we will never appreciate the wonder of approaching the throne of grace with boldness. Able to call the judge of all the earth, Dad. Peter's response when he saw the power of Jesus is, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. That was his response to the holy power of Jesus. But of course, the good news is Jesus doesn't want to go away. Six, we teach with grace when we teach the bad news. Obviously, you know, it's, uh, it's the only way you appreciate the, the good news. Uh, Keller is right. We are far worse than we can ever imagine. We're far more love we can ever hope. And our task is to thoroughly explore the total depravity of humanity um, and not to shy away from it. Yet we must keep affirming. I think we're a little bit sloppy in the way we speak about it. So we can talk of Christians like they're non-Christians and we're not clear. You know, We are by nature objects of wrath, but I'm not left to my nature. I'm renewed in Christ. Um, uh, this is what I was, this is not what I am now. Um, and so you've got to keep being very clear about when you're describing what we are, what we are needs to come with the nuances of the passage that describes total depravity in the context that it is for the believer. It's not their defining entity anymore, even though this is what they are by nature, this is what we are by nature. Um, but we're no longer dead in our transgressions, we're no longer enemies. We are no longer followers of Satan. We are no longer objects of wrath. We are by nature, but we're not left to our nature. Uh, and so I just want to kind of, I think that keeps getting confused when we're preaching on grace. Uh, and it's the 13, uh, and I know I've kind of moved off topic here, but we teach with grace when we celebrate our blessings in Christ with much joy. I don't think we do enough of this. I mean, think about Ephesians 1. My goodness. You know, that's a litany of blessings in Christ Jesus to the glory of God from election and forgiveness 
to knowing our future, knowing the future of the world in Christ, you know, being placed under the lordship of Christ, to the sealing and, and, uh, and, and work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and celebrating that and let the tone of our preaching celebrate. Let our people know how blessed they are. And then 14, we teach with grace when we explore the positive implications of total depravity. There are positive implications. Uh, like, for example, it explains reality. My goodness. Finally, a worldview that can explain the good and the bad. We're the only ones that can do it. You know that, don't you? Us as image bearers and common grace expresses the good. And total depravity explains the bad. Right, I can understand everything that happens in my world now. Total depravity is a relief doctrine. Uh, we don't have to pretend. Um, and then 15, we teach with grace when we teach the counterfeit alternatives, you know. Set grace against other worldviews. My goodness, you know. You want to preach the Bible? Just read the Quran. <laughs> really, thank you, Lord. Um, I like more than one genre, at least. Just that alone. <laughs> Set grace against the never-ending yardstick. Oh, sorry, the, the never-ending payback of karma, as one of our hippie missionaries said. The cross, the great karma buster. Uh, set grace against works righteousness that's lurking in every religion and every heart. Set grace against the meaninglessness of materialistic worldview. And then finally, if you're not uh, gracious outside the pulpit, it will undermine the preaching of grace inside the pulpit, which is exactly what Tim's been saying. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to preach grace. We want to preach grace on your terms as you have revealed this awesome love you have displayed towards us from before time began right through to the end of the age. Uh, and, and Father, we want to not only preach grace but preach with grace so that in the end, Father, we are interested in not winning arguments but winning souls for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.